I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the New Testament, to an epistle of Paul, to the book of Ephesians. This morning our focus is going to be upon verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, but the context of our passage really begins earlier than that in chapter 5. Verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Our passage falls within this broader context of the Lord speaking to his people about what it looks like to live wisely, not just acceptably, but in the best way that God helping us, we possibly can. And especially, the apostle lays out what that looks like in terms of our relationships in the home. And so you would see in verses 22 through 33, he talks about the duties of husbands and wives toward one another. A little bit later, in chapter 6, he speaks about servants and masters who at that time, as it is in some places today, lived together more often than not. So this speaks of how households function in the Lord. But then our passage that we're focusing on, verses 1 through 4, focuses on the roles of children and parents. Whether or not you have children, whether or not you think that someday you may have children, if you are in Jesus Christ, you belong to a covenant community. And part of what we do then is lift up one another, exhort one another to walk in the way that we have all together been called And so it's important that we understand God's will for us in this respect. Hear together with me the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we come before you hungry to receive your direction, your transformation. On the other hand, Lord, if we come before you and we feel little hunger, then how deeply we need the working of the Holy Spirit. We ask through the mercy that's promised graciously in Christ that you would please be at work among us. Heavenly Father, you know every heart here perfectly, young and old. Please guide us, protect us from error, inflame us in order that we might be faithful servants of you. We ask these things ultimately for your glory, but knowing that your glory is our good and the blessing of our neighbors. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, it's possible that some of you who are visitors are not aware of a fact, but anyone who has been here for any length of time is aware of what I'm about to say. We have been blessed recently with numerous births. That means that there are numerous baptisms having already taken place and on the horizon, another one in just a few weeks. And then over the last several years, just this has been the case. I remember five years ago, teaching the high school catechism, and there were maybe six, seven, eight students at that time. Now we're approaching closer to 30 high schoolers, and the Lord blesses. Sometimes there are particular seasons of greater numbers of youth. 
But that means with something like 100 youth in our church total of all ages, it is very important for us to come back from time to time and think about what is God's will for the family. What is God's will for the family? And again, I say before all of us, even if you don't have children or don't intend to have children, you are a part of a multi-generational covenant community. Whether in this church or another church, that is God's will for us. And so it's important that we understand God's will and even more so that we feel transformed to walk according to it. This is a crucial point from the outset. That what is presented before us is not merely advice. Any parent has memories, I'm sure, that shortly after they received the news that they were expecting a child, they began to receive all kinds of advice from others. And a lot of that advice was optional. People just sharing, well, this worked for me and maybe it'll work for you. And it's all given with the best of intentions. What is before us in the word this morning is not optional advice. It comes to us through an apostle chosen by Jesus Christ. Remember that discipleship, according to Jesus in the book of Matthew, is to go into all the world and teach people to obey whatsoever he has commanded. This is among those commands. And so it is of the utmost importance that as we hear and consider these things, we are asking the Lord, give me the heart to love your will for me, for my family, for my church. Help me to walk in these ways. And we're going to see this morning, essentially, that the Holy Spirit is calling us to perceive parenthood as a ministry of discipleship. It is many other things, but it is never less than that. In fact, arguably foremost, it is that. It's a stewardship from God to guide another generation toward the Lord and all of his ways. And importantly, we're going to see that this calling, this imperative, this command that rests upon the family, upon the parents, is undergirded by God's promises to us, the way that he chooses to relate to our families and especially to our children. It doesn't begin at you, or else you would despair of seeing the Lord's blessing in your life. Now, as we consider this passage, we're going to look at it under two main headings, and I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But the first is going to be to look carefully at what are called imperatives in this passage, commands. The verbal form in Greek, there's a form that's specifically a command. It leaves no question that that's what's going on, not simply advice. And then secondly, we're going to look at some of the incentives that the Lord provides for us, things that will encourage you, motivate you to walk in faithfulness. And then, Lord willing, as we conclude, we'll simply look at some of the ways that this church is partnering with you and some of the ways the Lord is partnering with you for these ends. But I invite you to look with me at verse 4 as we consider this first main idea. The imperatives, the commands that are laid before us here. It's not always fun to be commanded by someone, but it becomes a blessing when you believe it's genuinely for your well-being. Famously, Augustine in the 3rd and 4th century, he prayed, Lord, command whatever you want and then give what you command. If you believe that the Lord is going to uphold you in his way, then it becomes a joy to hear a command. Notice first to whom the command is directed in verse 4. Fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers. It's directed to fathers. Now, why is the emphasis here towards fathers and not mothers? I'll tell you, it's certainly not because mothers are excluded or because they are incapable. The fact is, often fathers feel, and others may affirm, that in individual cases, the mother seems more gifted for it. And the Bible certainly bears out cases of extremely effective mother disciplers. Paul speaks with praise about Timothy's mother and grandmother. Timothy was a young pastor, and his mother and grandmother had very effectively communicated the word to him. You have, as we saw a number of weeks ago in the evening service, a statement in Proverbs chapter 31 that says that the king himself was taught about rule by his mother. She communicated wisdom. So it has nothing to do with this being exclusive of fathers. Why then the emphasis here? There are probably several reasons. Contextually, he's addressing fathers. And just because he addresses one doesn't mean it doesn't apply to others. That's a rule that's generally wise to bear in mind. But then also because the Lord, by his sovereign, his free, his royal determination, places the central responsibility for spiritual guidance upon the male in the home. That is not a popular thought these days. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. And it's what we find throughout the scriptures. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, if you looked back just a little bit, at verses 22 through 33 are extremely clear about this. When it says that husbands, in some sense, are the head of the wife, as Christ is the head. Think about that for a moment. The head, in some sense, bears a greater responsibility for the direction of a body. And yet... Any head that's not mad and insane directs things for the well-being of the body, loves the body. And why is that? It is not, again, because men necessarily, in individual cases, are better, wiser at that work. But Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that by some mysterious purpose, the Lord delighted to set up in the world a picture. Husbands and wives, from the very beginning act out a kind of drama, a kind of living prophecy. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that it's a picture of the way that Christ and his church relate together in fruitful union, meant to be an enduring union. And it's a beautiful picture then when husbands lead well, when they assume that role and they don't lay it upon their wives, of the way that Christ in mercy has assumed for us that final responsibility. Husbands who leave their wives to bear final responsibility have misrepresented to their wives and their children something about Christ. And then perhaps there's another reason, very practical. Perhaps the apostle had observed something. Perhaps in his culture, there was a greater tendency among men to neglect this duty. And it may be so even now, among some families, among some churches, that men may be more inclined to cede that role to their wives as foremost, or entirely to them. St. Augustine, whom I mentioned, speaks over and over throughout his voluminous writings about 44 large volumes. I've heard it said by scholars that no one has ever read Augustine, in that sense, read it all. And yet, over and over, he speaks of his mother and her wonderful influence, Monica, Monica. 
how she prayed endlessly for him, followed him literally around the Mediterranean, trying to bring the gospel to him. He wasn't converted until he was 30 years old. And yet his father is mentioned, perhaps only twice in all the writing. And one of those times he says, my father only cared for my education and my profession. And so there may be that danger. Verse 4, however, says, fathers, bring them up. Fathers, bring them up. You can't simply delegate that, and you can't simply say somebody else is better at it, the pastor or uh, my wife or some other person. Fathers are then most responsible here, though it certainly applies to mothers as well. We've seen to whom it's directed. Notice the direction itself in verse 4. It contains two basic parts, a positive part and a negative part. Verse 4, the positive part, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is your duty, parents. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. Not simply as decent citizens of the nation, of the world, but in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now the word discipline here, other translations may have different words if you're looking at a different translation. Words like guidance or teaching How do you do that? Certainly, it must involve modeling. If you will not show your children in your own life a habit of repentance, of faith, of seeking after godliness, if they don't see that with their own eyes, what will all of your words be worth? But on the other hand, it cannot be less than words. The example is not enough in itself. If you just live a moral example and you don't talk to your child about grace... Your child doesn't learn the gospel, at least not in the home. That is too often the case in many Christian homes. Their children learn all about moral uprightness, doing the right thing, but they don't hear their parents express their own need of forgiveness and ask for forgiveness and express forgiveness before the Lord. This is one of the wonderful opportunities that you have in Christ to showcase the gospel. When you do what is wrong, to go with your child into prayer and ask for forgiveness of the Lord, and then to express your apology to the child if you've wronged them. So it needs to be modeled, but also there needs to be words. In fact, the second term, instruction, consider that. And the discipline and the instruction. The ESV translates this rightly. This is a fair translation, but it is a strong term in Greek. In fact, one way to render this in Different contexts is to warn. To warn. And that is one of the least enjoyable aspects of being a parent, is it not? It's fun to encourage, but when a child is going in the wrong way, you must speak up about that. There's the need for admonishing. In fact, I don't ask that you turn there, but listen carefully. This is what the Lord says to Abraham as one of the primary examples of a covenant family. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. The Lord says, I have chosen Abraham. Abraham didn't choose himself. He didn't decide he was going to be a godly parent. He said, the Lord says, I have chosen Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. 
Abraham was under obligation to command his family, not just a gentle, you know, you might want to try out Christianity. If the child was in Abraham's home, Abraham was to charge him, walk in God's way. The Lord has put you into the visible form of his covenant kingdom. He has given you a charge of the way of righteousness to go in. And that means at times there's the need for earnest admonition. Admonition, a strong caution or rebuke. Some parents probably lean towards not doing that enough. Other parents perhaps go the other way. Children are not the only ones who need to be admonished. Look with me again at verse 4. This is the negative side of the instruction. The positive side was to discipline your children, to provide them with instruction. But here we're told something not to do. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This does require some commentary because certainly the Lord does not mean that at no time are we ever to upset our children. Sometimes our children don't like being disciplined. But what is being meant here is the idea of exasperating, of needlessly wearing down and grinding a child breaking their little spirit by being, I don't know if anyone uses this word anymore, a martinet, like a a drill instructor, and just hammering them and hammering them, but not providing an appropriate amount of tenderness and grace either. Again, I want to stress that this is not meant to be exclusive as though only men do this. He is speaking to fathers here. Mothers certainly at times are capable, and I'm sure... With this number of women present, there are some who grieve the memory of times that they have done this. Thank God the Lord is gracious. And he calls us to grow. But perhaps it's directed to fathers here because Paul observed a greater tendency among men to withhold tenderness or to justify aggression. I'll speak to my own conviction here. But it's something that I have also observed and heard confessions from among men. Sometimes we pass off zeal for our own authority as zeal for the Lord. We have a derivative authority. It comes from the Lord. And therefore, we have to use it at all times for his glory in his way. But sometimes the anger that can explode in the home In that moment, it's not coming from a zeal for the Lord's righteousness. It's because we feel that there is a a loyalty level that has grown too thin to me, and I must be served. Sometimes in those moments, the Lord's will may be not to heap up shame, but tenderness, tears. Is that not how the Lord at times deals with us when we know we deserve to have the book thrown at us? but he can deal tenderly. So I'd exhort you to consider that, especially the fathers, but it applies to all. Imagine a lever, and you're cranking it. And you're cranking this lever too hard, too fast, for too long. What might happen? You begin to strip the threads of that lever. Maybe even break it off. Where there is not an appropriate respect for the limits of children what they can bear up with, there is the danger over time of stripping the relational threads, if not breaking them off entirely. 
They may continue to walk with the Lord, but your own place in their life may be broken. Some of you I know could bear witness to that, and I don't bring it up to grieve you, but it is necessary to see this in the text. The Lord speaks plainly to us in order that we might learn wisdom. And so in some, this first main point, the Lord calls us to take seriously the role of parents as disciples. This is not optional. Every one of us is called to it. At the same time, you can't hear these sayings if you are a parent and not think, that is not easy. This is not easy. And you who hope someday to have children, I, I've known plenty of people, I'm sure you have as well, who start out thinking that they want to have seven 12, a thousand children. And then the reality of even one or two hits home. And they say, oh, this is hard. I come from a large family. I saw some of those things firsthand. So things that I have not experienced as a parent, I nevertheless see that it's difficult. I know some of you do as well. But even one child, that child is a sinner, and you have a tall order to be a gracious discipler. Both of those combined, this is difficult. And thankfully, the Lord would then provide us from his word and from this passage in particular, provide us with some incentives, some motivations. I want to lay before you two, two, and this will serve as our second main division, two incentives to perform this duty diligently in faith. The first of them requires a bit of concentration. I'm going to say that from the outset, especially if you are not coming from a reformed background, as I did not. But it's very important because you need to come back to this idea over and over again. It is one of, if not the most important ideas in parenthood that you will ever encounter. This is the first incentive. I exhort you to reflect very deeply and frequently upon the status that God has chosen to give to the children of believers. I'll say that again. Reflect deeply and often upon the status that God has chosen to give the children of believers. What is that status? Essentially, as we're going to see, he has chosen to place children not simply among the covenant community in the way that, say, an outsider who's not a Christian comes among us, but he has chosen to identify them with the promises of grace and to place them in and with his visible church. And to have us regard them as God's disciples until they should otherwise prove not to want it. And even then, to pray and to hope that the Lord would bring them back. Now, where would we see this from? In the first place, we're going to see it from the way that God works in what I'd say is a continuity in his covenants. A continuity. In fact, I invite you to turn to Genesis 17, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Genesis 17, first book of the Bible. As you turn there, here also, by the way, verse 1, it says, of chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. For me, having come from outside, not being a believer in infant inclusion, that infants also receive baptism, I remember there was a time when I read, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I took that simply as if the parents were in the Lord. Obey your parents who happen to be Christians, for that's right. Or simply as the commands there. Obey your parents 
in the Lord for that is right as if it means simply obey your parents and the things that they say to do that are good. Both are true enough, but is that all Paul is saying? Or is he regarding the children also as in the Lord in some sense? The continuity of God's covenantal dealings means that although there are differences in the way that God has dealt with his people throughout the ages, the way it looked under the old covenant, you know, there's a a physical temple, there's not now, yet there are things that remain the same. That's continuity, continuation. Hear what it says in Genesis 17, speaking at a time long before there was the temple and the old covenant law. The Lord says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right, hold on. The Lord is promising to give an everlasting inheritance to Abraham's offspring. And yet, certainly some of his physical offspring were not believers. The book of Romans speaks of Jacob and Esau. The stories of the Old Testament, if you read them at all, you would know many, many of them were not regenerate people. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were not of faith. And yet the Lord counts them in this life among the visible church. In order to receive the spiritual benefits promised in the covenant, one must believe. The promise is not, in a sense, you will be saved, each and every one of you who receives a sign. The promise is, all of my people called by my name, who trust in me, shall be saved. And the Lord, though he knew that there were people in Abraham's descendants who were not believers, nevertheless gave his covenant sign alike to all of them. Verses 9 and following describes how Abraham was to give the covenant sign of that time, circumcision, to every infant, male, born. Why? I don't ask you to turn there. I invite for your study. It was one of the passages that brought me around. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Romans 4.11, any of you who are wondering about why do we include children, Romans 4.11 is important. In that passage, the apostle says that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and a seal, an authoritative emblem from God of the righteousness which he had through faith. It was a picture of righteousness through faith. Why then was it given to infants who had not yet demonstrated that they necessarily had faith? Because it was not a sign, per se, of Abraham's own faith. It was a sign of the righteousness which comes through faith. The righteousness of Jesus Christ covenanted by God with his people. And therefore, from infancy forward, a child had a token, a physical physical sign and seal placed upon him to direct him where to find life. God not only spoke to the ear, but also impressed upon that child, you will find life through faith in me, in my promises. And the Lord dealt that way with his covenant people for over 1,500 years, all the way up to the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, I invite you to turn there. One of the passages we heard in the forum concerning baptism. 
the context there, bear in mind, Acts chapter 2, this is in the New Testament. Jesus has been raised, he's been ascended, and the apostles go out to preach. And here they're preaching to a group of Jewish people, not Gentiles, Jewish people who have come back into Jerusalem. And he proclaims the gospel and they ask what they must do now. And Peter says to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism does not convey the forgiveness of sins. It's something that these people are being told to do as an act of faith in the forgiveness of sins, much as Abraham received circumcision as an act of faith in what he already had by faith. Circumcision didn't save him. It was a seal that came after his faith. And yet, the very next thing, verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. Just as the Lord provided a visible promise in the Old Testament period, a visible promise of the gospel, and he gave it both to adults and their children, so these Jews, how could they hear it any other way? As now baptism, even so, God is calling you to receive this, and the promise is also for your children. Baptism doesn't save the kids, but it is a token, a sign of their belonging to the visible church, and that God has set them apart from the world. And so that has to do with the continuity. So much more could be added about the continuity. For instance, it says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the children of believers are holy. Not saved, but distinct, set apart. Or throughout Acts, that Households are baptized together. But there's one other way why I think we should understand it this way, that children are included, and that has to do with the context of our passage. Look with me again. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Does that sound familiar at all? Is he quoting from somewhere? Yes. If you're not familiar, here Paul is quoting from and applying the promise given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the commandment, honor your father and mother, in order that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord your God, not some other people's God, not just your parents' God. God has chosen to place children in a context where formally, if not spiritually, he is their God. They're not to be treated as though they're just out there in the world, potential converts someday. That doesn't mean that we don't bring before them the gospel, but it means that we start from a position of believing that God would be gracious to our kids. And it's true here, too. I look out at you and I see only people that I hope are in the Lord. And I see mostly people uh, who I regard as believers, but not because I can see into your heart, but because you belong to the visible church. And how long will I regard you as believers until you leave me no reason or no other hope but to think that you are outside of the community? And even so with our children, this is the default way that we treat them, nurturing their professions of faith from a young age. Why do I say all of this? It's one simple reason. 
This call to disciple your children is greatly stimulated when you believe that God, by his choice, has made you a discipler of them. That he put them in a position of, he could have done otherwise, by his providence, he placed them in a covenant family. And so it's not just your desire to raise your children, to dedicate yourself to that, that should move you. You have been given this job by the Lord. But then there's another thing that drives us, that helps us. I invite you to turn to Psalm 103. This is the second of the incentives. Psalm 103. Here what I want to encourage you to is to reflect deeply and often on the gracious way that our Heavenly Father is bringing you up. There's a sense in which we are all called children of the Lord. And in this life, we will remain children. We are maturing. And the goal is to reach the measure of the stature of the man, Christ Jesus. But which one of us, I I would not be the first, would raise our hand and say, I have reached that. No, we all need discipline. And 1 Corinthians talks about the father disciplines every son whom he loves. How does he discipline us? Psalm 103 tells us in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. How many of you have even in the past week felt that that is not true. That God is chasing you around with a paddle, angry all the time. If that is your feeling, it's not coming from the word. Where is it coming from? Now, of course, the Lord disciplines us and discipline can be painful. But the attitude in which he conducts it and when you view it overall in a lifetime is one of extreme graciousness. He tends to discipline us more severely when we become totally out of hand. And I think we know that. How many times do you sin in a day? If you counted all the times the Lord is aware of the ways that we fail to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor even as we love ourselves. Measured in that way, Think how gracious God is. He loves to be tender. And as you minister in your families, or as you guide others to that purpose, you are, before you're even, in a sense, a parent, I'm not sure how perfectly to word this, you're an instrument of parentage communicating God's parenthood to that child. Before you ever think anything about, what's my parental style? We all, to a degree, have some leeway there. 
but you are the instrument of mercy and of grace in your child's life. It would be far better for your children to grow up and know the gospel and maybe have some other things out of order than to be totally buttoned up, put together, financially sound, excellent educations, and yet not know the Lord and his grace. Many people forsake morality who never knew Christianity. These are not meant to be mutually exclusive. Ideally, we have both together. But it is so easy to lose sight of our true calling, which is ministers of grace. So as we conclude, what I want to do is simply first lay before you again. I don't need to scream and shout it. The Lord convicts us from the heart. This is not just advice. It is God's will for every parent that they would raise their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It doesn't stop at age 18. You continue to speak into the lives of your children. The role may change, and yet it goes on. So let's exhort one another to do that. If you, without, I'm not trying to cause meddling, but if you're aware that another is not doing this, it's your job first to speak to them, if you're the one who observes that. And not for things to grow out of hand, such that elders become involved. To speak in love, knowing that every one of us is susceptible to falling as well. It's a duty, but it's also an awesome privilege, and I encourage you to see it that way. Billions of people on this planet presently, how many billions total in all of history? Only a couple were chosen by God to be raised in your home. That is an awesome responsibility, but it's also a tremendous privilege and blessing. So I'd exhort you to rejoice in that, and not simply that you're a parent, but again, going back to that picture, husbands and wives, pictures of Christ in the church, you get to act out in a special way for that child, something of the nurture that the father and his church show. And to talk to them about that and to own your weaknesses in that respect. I want to encourage you to take advantage of the way that this church partners with you. If you're a member here, and Lord willing, if you attend somewhere else, if you're just visiting this morning, you have similar things. First and foremost, it was the Lord who ordained this formal service. Ephesians chapter 6 could not be more obvious. He's written a letter to the church, and he speaks to children right there. And it's not uncommon in this church for the pastors or elders from the pulpit to address children. Have your children be present whenever possible. Yes, they make some noise. No, it does not bother us. If it becomes truly distracting, I remember one church I went to, they had what they called the seven-second rule. Seven seconds feels like a small eternity in a service. But if the child is really screaming and crying for a long time, perhaps for the child's sake, take the child out. But we are built for this, and we'll do fine. The Lord has graciously included children among us. Think how many churches at this time, in the desire to reach and speak to children in a specific way, segregate everything out by age, but fail to do the one thing most essential, communicate palpably that the children are part of the church, not just hoping to join it someday. It's possible to be in a church 18 years and never be in church. We will, by God's help, never become that church. Because, not that we're so wise, we are not wise enough. We must submit to the foolishness, the apparent foolishness, of having our children with us for this. 
Also, I'd encourage you this coming season, as we begin on the 19th to have adult Sunday school again, the focus is going to be for five or six weeks on parenting, coming from people who have not figured it all out, but it is an opportunity to think about these things and to encourage one another. If you can be there, I encourage you to do so. Also with Sunday school of all ages, don't underestimate the value. Just this past week, I gathered together with some men for dinner, and I asked, what were the main ways that you feel that you have been discipled in your life? And one person, without missing a beat, said that for him, it was catechism, going through the fundamentals of the faith together on the Lord's Day. Don't sell your family short. I encourage you. I realize in a city with this size, there's a lot of factors that make it hard. But if you can possibly make arrangement for your children to be present, do so. Finally, part of the Sunday School program this year is going to increase our focus on memorization. This is not something new. This is something very old. David says in the Psalms, I have hidden your word in my heart in order that I might not sin against you. I think sometimes that teenagers and adults feel hesitant to have memories, especially adults feel hesitant to have children memorize very much because we approach it from our experience as adults. It's harder to memorize as adults. Children are thought sponges. They may not know what everything means, but you lay a foundation early. Parents, I urge you, I can't compel you or force you, but as our children begin to memorize, join with them in that process. Hold them accountable. Tell them they are capable. Help them. Every child's different. Some will require greater effort. It is worth it. It is so worth it to have a foundation laid from a young age, to have the scriptures and to have clear statements of our faith in us. Finally, and most importantly, call to mind that the Lord partners with you. A thousand times a week if you have to. It was his idea. He cares more about your children than you do. Ask him to continue that work. Pray for his grace. And in his time, may he richly bless us. Let's ask for that blessing even now. You are our heavenly father. Our God, we thank you that you have chosen to receive us, to adopt us in Christ. That you... Deal with us graciously. We pray the same for our children and the children of this church. Lord, please give us wisdom and guidance. Please give us endurance as it often feels very thankless. But your word tells us that if we give even a cup of water in your name, you receive it as unto yourself. How many little cups of water have we given to our children? Help us much more to give them your word, to nourish them, to come back and repent where we need. We ask these things in order that you would be glorified and your church would receive its full blessing. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.